And so I learned, while planning this act of civil disobedience, that Gerald R. Ford was not a simple-minded Claude, as he's so often portrayed. Yes, he banged his head on a few door frames and stuck his feet in the occasional wheel of brie, but to emphasize these few incidents of comical clumsiness is to obscure his status as an accomplished college football player, avid golfer, lifetime swimmer, and fine all-around athlete. And yes, while serving as vice president, he alternated between dithering defenses and confused criticisms when asked about his boss's involvement in the Watergate break-in. But this ingenuousness was actually an ingenious strategy to distance himself from Nixon's crimes while maintaining public faith in the integrity of the Republican Party. Before you submit to my demands so I don't detonate these explosives strapped to my chest, do you have any questions? Uh, yes, I, I do, Dr. Nair. Uh, first, hi, uh, I'm Will Verdeen with the Michigan Small College Association. I've heard so much about you. It's nice to finally meet you, despite the circumstances. Uh, but anyway, uh, what are your demands exactly? Uh, why are you attempting to martyr yourself at the planning meeting for our annual fundraiser? Because I understand that this year's Gerald Ford Fiesta will feature a pratfall contest, and I demand that you cancel it. Not only do I want to correct the historical record, I must denounce this defamation of your state's most famous politician. Not to mention a man who served on the director's board of most of the colleges represented here. Well, yes, uh, Dr. Neer, that's, that's true. <laughs> That's why so many of us have programs named after him, like the Ford Institute for Leadership and the Ford School of Male Modeling. But <laughs> the pratfall contest isn't meant to be disrespectful of Gerald Ford. It's meant to be disrespectful of Chevy Chase. Oh, well, that's very different. Not to mention justified. Well, it seems I've made a well-meaning but horribly misguided mistake. As Richard Nixon said, I beg your pardon. Are those bombs real? According to Amazon.ru, yes. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today... President 38, Gerald Ford. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. And now, ladies and gentlemen of Democracy Burlesque and DB Comedy, the moment Dr. Chelsea Deneau has been waiting for this entire series. Hey, Joe, who are we? Well, I'm Joe. I am Paul. I am Sandy. And I'm Sylvia. I'm Tommy. And I'm Patrick. And our Americanists, uh, still James. 
And Chelsea, why your admiration for one Gerald R? I forget what the R stands for. For Rudolph. Really? Rudolph? Yeah. Yes. Oh, terrific. As in Valentino. <laughs> Although with two Fs for some reason. Mm. No, it was PH. It was originally F. Yes, Chelsea, I know this trivia as well. But when he changed his name from Leslie Lynch King Jr. to Gerald Rudolph Ford Jr., he traded the F for a PH so that he would look more American. It what? makes him look less American, if you ask me. So <laughs> what? Ru- Rudolph with an F has a kind of a German ring to it. Yes, an Eastern you, European ring. But then, yeah, but you don't have that cuddly claymation thing that you do with the other Rudolph. Uh, but Chelsea, what, what is it about Ford that you lo- let, makes you love him so? It's a couple of things, Joe. I didn't know that I would have to have a list ready, but I luckily I keep it in my back pocket of my brain. <laughs> Justify your obsession. <laughs> First of all, he is Michigan's only president. Even though he wasn't born in Michigan, we claim him as our own. How's um, that right, Michigan? He spent most of his life here. He represented Michigan in Congress, right? All of these good... Well, things. Illinois would more or less do the same thing with Obama a few years ago. Right, later. see? And Lincoln. Justified. So that's reason number one. He's Michigan's favorite president. And number two, he named and dedicated the Gerald R. Ford Institute for Leadership in Public Policy and Service at Albion College, which is my and James's alma mater. Uh, Yeah, no Brits. What are they? We are the Britons. The Brits. Yay, fighting Brits. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I guess it is called Albion College, so what else would you call it? Come on. We were in a marching band called the British Eighth. What's it all about, Albion? Joe and Chelsea, why are we doing an episode about Gerald Ford on a podcast called The Electables? Because we did one about Johnson. We have have the artwork. He was not elected. Andrew Johnson was not elected. And... Uh, he was uh, oh, he was as vice president. He was elected as vice president. Yes. Uh, also, though, Gerald Ford assumed the presidency according to the Twenty Fifth Amendment, which mm-hmm. was signed into law or created by law by elected congressional representatives. Also, was voted on by states. So he very indirectly was elected president right and he was that also elected vice president by the people's representatives in congress <laughs> yes i think we also you know we had just had nixon and he had won that second election in such a landslide that we were like maybe we shouldn't pick <laughs> maybe we don't pick good ones especially because he wasn't the vice president in 72 that was spot spiro i think james made the better point right that gerald ford was elected by was assented to well and so it's the 25th amendment came in real useful because if there had been no 25th amendment the vice presidency would have been vacant upon spiro agnew's resignation and then upon nixon's resignation the speaker of the house would have just become president at that point which he was a democrat he was a democrat (laughs) so nixon would have never resigned that was a consideration also when nixon was mulling over well should i resign it's like no (laughs) If they take out Agnew for his uh, chicanery, and then I go, 
we, the Speaker of the House is going to be a Democrat. Hell no, we're not giving it up. So Gerald Ford has to be the person whose name changed most dramatically over the course of their life of any president because Gerald, Rudolph, and Ford were none of his names when he was born. <laughs> Yes. So was this person ever Ford? Was this person ever actually president? <laughs> he was born Chelsea, Leslie what, Lynch what, King Jr. And what's yeah. the saying about it, Chelsea? Are you only president who was a king? Mm-hmm. Hey. Oh, literally, Paul. They tell that joke to you the first day that you're at in the Ford Institute. They sit you down, <laughs> like here is a joke for you that you will repeat for the rest of your life. Here is the punchline. And you aristocrats no way. i feel like more respectable institutions should lead off by going okay here's the dad joke that you're going to get to tell yeah, about feel, our work i feel like that specific joke acts as a pipeline between the gerald ford institute and the betty ford center <laughs> <laughs> like so many presidents and i think the destitution of his early years would explain away some of his um money grubbing for lack of a better term after his presidency very honest politician very well remunerated ex-president his his birth father whom he never met until he was 15 years old used to beat the hell out of his mom so his mother very commendably left Omaha, his birthplace, moved back to Grand Rapids and met a charming, what was he, a furniture dealer, Chelsea? Uh, He was a paint and varnish salesman, thank you. Mm. Okay, a paint and varnish salesman named Gerald Rudolph with an F Ford. So he wasn't in the witness protection program. He just wanted his new dad's name. Although there was a lot of varnish. And wanted nothing to do with his uh, birth dad's name, I think, is the more important thing. Although technically, Gerald Rudolph Ford never adopted Gerald Rudolph Ford Jr. because they thought that would mitigate, uh, minimize the chance of Gerald of Leslie Lynch Sr. paying any child support or and alimony, which he never did anyway. The grandfather who owned a bank paid child support. The dad never paid child support. Ah, the dad didn't he call up some money for his college. Ooh, that I did when not. they did sue him, maybe. Well, another so I know so, he was a male model, uh, early oh, Gerald Ford. Yes, yeah. I feel like him becoming president is the least interesting story in his life. <laughs> Actually, though, yes, you Ford scholar. Now, was Gerald Ford ever a model independent of his like super hottie girlfriend that he had in his mid 20s? Yes. They actually, so he he and Betty both were models for the same agency, but didn't meet at that agency. They met in Grand Rapids. I thought Betty was a dancer, but she, she was also old. was a model. Was she a actually went to modeling. She she modeled to pay for dance school. Wow. Okay. I'm just now realizing this. Was there any advantage to growing up in Michigan with the last name Ford at the time? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we even mentioned it because my the thing I most think about Ford is I'm like he's one of those presidents where if you Google his last name he's not on the first page. <laughs> yeah. But what's know, interesting it, I think about about Michigan right is that he grows up on the west side of the state, yes. and the west side of the state does not have nearly the same 
ties the auto industry that the east and central part of the state do and it has a different political feel a different cultural yes. feel if it's he had all... been from detroit or he had been from dearborn or even from ann arbor maybe that would have been more significant i think at least when he starts politics on the west side of the state it doesn't matter um but, but right, michigan in some ways he's actually at a disadvantage because he doesn't have a dutch last name right but he but he is in a state that is at its economic cultural apex in a lot of ways the 30s 40s particularly the 40s 50s and 60s well that apex 50s. the new apex is coming once global warming gets going and we've got all the <laughs> that's right yes when um, cleveland becomes water. the dubai of fresh water i'm ready for it absolutely yes but also right i mean thinking about grand rapids in the 40s 50s and 60s it's the furniture capital of the world and or of, at least of the united states and so really not high point north carolina not I'm at that sorry. time. It's Grand Rapids. Yep. Herman Miller. And um, unions were still okay back then. They went south because they weren't. There were no unions. You forgot about his the high point of his life, being like playing football for the Michigan Wolverines. All American oh, was he not? On. Was he not an All American? He, he was. He was what an was All American. He was offensive lineman. Uh, yeah. That sounds no, he was a right. Although he might have played both ways, um, <laughs> I, I, think he did, I think he did play. I think he played defense. Um, I think he was more he known for being a defensive player. Oh, uh, Michigan won a national title in '32 and '33, and then there was the the whole incident where he was roommates with a black player, and oh gosh, I had just Will, Willis Ward, um, and they were going to play a game down. Cool, at, actually, yeah, they're going to play a game down at Georgia Tech. And um, Georgia Tech was not going to play if Michigan was going to play Willis Ward. Um, and I guess some of the details here are a little sketchy and have been contested a little bit. But the basic story is that um, basically the, the university administration was like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. We won't play Willis Ward. We're going to play the game anyways. And Ford basically protested and said, no, I'm not going to play the game if you're going to sit him out. But then Willis Ward said, no, go ahead and play the game anyways. And so he did. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, but I, I guess, uh, you know, one half point to Ford for not being totally racist and, 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 and rooming with a black player. I think, I think, I think that is the bigger part of the story, honestly, that he was comfortable with having a black roommate. Um, and not just a roommate, right? Like they were, like his, they were friends. Very good friend. His yeah. very like good Ward friend. has, ha, had even said that, Gerald Ford was Jerry Ford was one of mm -hmm. my only friends on the team. And that was 1932 through 1934. So that was. Wow. Yeah. In 34. So James makes a good point that 32 and 33 were great years for Michigan football. 34, which was Ford's senior year. Mm -hmm. They were trash. They were garbage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, but he, he still wins the MVP award for the team that year for playing against who I think um, national champion Minnesota and just playing amazing defense, right? So the other he story often, he often referred back to that game against Minnesota many times throughout his political political career. Wait, I have one more thing, y'all. One more Michigan football thing, and then I <laughs> promise I will be done. One more. I love Michigan football almost as much as I love Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, when he was president, he actually asked the Naval Band to play Hail to the Victors instead of Hail to the Chief. 
when he would come out for events. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's not quite as good as Huey Long actually writing his own fight song for LSU. Tripling <laughs> the size of the band. Like, literally, Huey Long... We should have a Huey Long episode at some point because that guy was a character. He goes down to LSU and he's like, we need to triple the size of your marching band down here. Oh, and play this song I wrote. Um, so what, 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 let's, let's talk about just World War II service. Let's just marcate it. Served in the Navy in the Pacific on a light aircraft carrier in his Monterey. In the Monterey. Thank you very much. Did he, did he, did he see combat? Yes. Yes. He was, he, did he fly both? Was he, did he fly airplanes or did he just, you know, send, you know, send bombs toward the Japanese, not right down on them? He was an instructor at pre-flight school. Uh, but he himself, I believe, did not fly. He was in the Navy and just was on the boat. When he was at sea, he was an anti-aircraft battery officer. There you go. He also, uh, continuing on his long tradition of liking sports better than politics, he was also the athletic officer uh, aboard the Monterey. Set <laughs> up a basketball court, didn't he? boxing was his jam man all right and at this point his his hot girlfriend phyllis brown the one who made a model out of him she wanted to stay in new york he wanted to move back to grand rapids it's grand and there's rapids on the neither of which was enough to entice phyllis on the noon train to grand rapids <laughs> but it's all so worked out because that's where he met Betty, Betty Bloomer. Ford. Betty Bloomer. Which frankly sounds more like a model than Phyllis Brown. What <laughs> yeah. kind of model, though? <laughs> also, she hated her last name, Bloomer. So I, I always like to tell myself that's why she got married so quickly to that other guy who was not Gerald Ford. <laughs> she was oh, like, Gerald I just got to get married husband? so my last name's not Bloomer. Now, was he yeah, Gerald was a she was a She was a sophisticated young divorcee working at a department store who'd danced in New York with for the Martha Graham dancers. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And um, her and Gerald Ford delayed their wedding until after he was elected to Congress because a lot of the folks who were helping him with his campaign were like, um, maybe you shouldn't marry a divorced dancer before only, you get elected. We At this point, we would only be, I think we'd be under 15 years past the King of England abdicating because he wanted to marry a divorced woman. So like, it was a huge, that's why I brought it up earlier. It seems yeah. like it was a huge deal at the time. Well, yeah. but was well, it a bigger was deal? She was an American, she'd yeah. been married twice before. Was it a bigger deal that Wallace Simpson was divorced or that she was American? That's the real. Or thing. that she wasn't a dancer. Well, wait a minute, were there political consultants telling the Fords not to have the wedding? Yeah. Or just to postpone it? Just to postpone it. Have it so, after the election. How did they explain Betty to the press? I mean, they see him with this woman regularly. Or maybe she was... In, I think... She probably didn't go on public events with them. I, yeah. Let's remember that Ford is not like a national... No, he's just figure, running for like a congressional right, until, until oh, okay. pretty late in his career when he becomes 
the minority leader in the house right and that's really only in the like late 60s that yes. he, he rises to that position before that he was just a backbencher congressman from michigan yeah. you know and, and not even the interesting part of the state and so you know i, I you know i think that there might have been some you know grand rapids press like her her this ford guy he's got some interesting domestic stuff going on but i don't think that there was really a whole lot of press or anything about ford's private life at this point I mean, um, something makes more was, sense that this is where the militia movement started in that part of this state Good i Lord. mean the thing is yeah he was up against a machine candidate and they i bet they would have used that against him if he'd married this divorced dancer before yeah the- i think I think this is the the thing, right? Like he already is at a disadvantage because he's a candidate who's just kind of coming out of nowhere challenging an incumbent. Um and they're like he's never going to win. And so the folks who are advising him, you know, I'm I they they are essentially just saying like just don't give them any fodder. Um We take you now to a wedding hall in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in August 1948. And I think my cousins could sit over here by the wedding cake, Betty. Just keep them away from my grandmother. She'll start telling stories about my ex-husband, and I don't need that drama. Was figuring out who sat where a problem with your other wedding? Oh, it's just as complicated as trying to win a primary, Jerry. I'll take your word for that. Mr. Ford, you need to cancel this wedding. What? Look at this flyer the McKay machine just sent out to the district. Cal, we're almost done with the seating charts. Can you give us two more minutes before you talk politics? Mr. Ford, they're using your fiancé to smear you. Can you please call me Jerry, Calvin? I am working for you, sir. Decorum. Oh, just be a pal, Cal. Excuse me? This is a matter for Mr. Ford? Well. Don't be rude, Calvin. Betty is going to be my wife. And it is going to cost you. This flyer is saying you are unfit for office because you are marrying a divorcee. My mother was a divorcee. You aren't marrying your mother. McKay might be into that. I told you the wedding would be a problem. Weddings are great for keeping family members who hate each other apart. Kind of like gerrymandering. Besides, Hollywood actors get divorced all the time. This isn't Hollywood. It's Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, thanks for the geography lesson. And Betts isn't an actress. But she was a dancer. That's just as bad to all these religious types in this district. Being a divorcee and a former dancer is as bad as being a streetwalker to these people. I beg your pardon? I was hired to help you win, Mr. Ford. You're trying to beat a political machine that will say and do anything to win. He's fully aware of what... Cancel this wedding. The ceremony's next month. I'm sorry, but your insistence on remarrying... I don't give a damn if people don't like my divorce. I'd rather be up front with it than get browbeaten by a bunch of Puritan sticks in the mud and a clown who wins elections by stirring them up. That's my bet. <laughs> you, you're throwing the election away. Calvin, we already delayed the wedding so we wouldn't run into the primary. 
And running a campaign in a wedding is not as easy as bets makes it look. I handle the seating arrangements, you handle the door knocking, it all works. But, 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 how am I going to respond to these flyers, Mr. Ford? I think I may have that covered. Oh, really? Hmm. I have a family member whose name I cannot disclose that has offered to purchase advertising throughout the district. There are billboards being erected throughout the area as we speak. I even have someone painting an office with Jerry Ford Jr. for Congress on the roof. All in areas the McKay machine is really strong in. How, how did you do that? <laughs> Let's just say some family members give gifts of China and silverware, others give gifts of a political donation to my fiance. Satisfied, Calvin? I, I suppose it will help, yes. I appreciate your concern. It's dirty pool, but that's why I'm running. We're going to beat the McKay machine, Calvin. I know you can do it. And then you can celebrate at our wedding. I'll even put you and your lovely wife at the same table as my grandmother. Okay. Now, as soon as we can get this reception set, the sooner I can get back to knocking on some doors. May we? Indeed. I hope you're right. Who bought the billboards? <laughs> I did. Seemed like a good way to invest the divorce settlement. Now, can we figure out how much wine to buy for the reception? As much as possible, I say. You're <laughs> the best, Betty. So it says here during his initial campaign, um, that he was he was a good retail politician. He visited people at their homes and uh, and when they left the factories and also went out into rural areas where apparently a wager had him milking uh, farmers' dairy cows for two weeks following his election victory. Yes. So Gerald wait, is that something you would do if you lost? Gerald yeah. Ford, cow whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> was the bet that he couldn't win like was he like there's no way i'm gonna win if the, i do or the bet was if you i i believe the bet was if you vote for me and i win i will milk your cow for two weeks oh that would be illegal that would be illegal <laughs> but, my, yeah my take on it was the it one, is, yeah that's uh that's yeah, not a cow. It's that's just a cow. That's yeah. not a cow mr ford oh. <laughs> you guys heard it here first gerald ford uh election, election fraudster <laughs> it's it's possible though that he's so midwestern that he's betting on himself and he's like and if i win i get to do chores for two years <laughs> <laughs> tommy, so tommy you're saying there's no quid pro cow oh uh, so i, I, I got to say this basically went something like um i just like hope he didn't skip like, off the top there's no way you could do this guy this guy's been in office. Like, no way, I'm going to waste my vote. And I think I could really win this. And the farmer's like, "Look, if you can, if you win this, you got to come back and milk my cows." Then, and Ford's like, "All right, deal." And so he wins. Honestly, this sounds like the plot to a charming uh, 1950s musical. Yeah, or, or a Capra movie. I was just going to say, like, that it would sounds see, like, like a, Jimmy a Jimmy Stewart film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or an episode of Parks and Rec. Also, all right so so we we get him to dc so he's a dc so he's he's kind of a dc lifer then isn't he 
with the occasional trips to Anna. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't. He okay. didn't like really cut his teeth at all in, in local or state politics. It, the yeah. congressional race was his first race. And um, may I ask what motivated him to get into politics? He says Wendell Wilkie. He came back <laughs> to the U.S. a committed internationalist, and his mm. congressman was an isolationist, and he felt that he should be replaced. So he decided ah, okay. to run against him. And Chelsea, so correct me if I'm wrong, his first, his first political idol was Wendell Wilkie. Yeah, to, to me, it's so interesting that Ford, Ford is, I, one of the reasons I, I also it's, I make this reason number three, that I love him so much. To me, he is uh, a, an impressionable Midwesterner. That's just who we are, y'all. <laughs> uh, and I just love that that's, that that's who he is, right? He finishes law school and is like, I'm an isolationist right? Like keep America out of war and then serves in the Navy and then comes back and is like, oh my gosh, uh, cooperation among the nations is actually a great thing. And that's beautiful. Hmm. And then he, then he just says, oh, let me just scooch right into Congress. <laughs> exactly. So we can move pretty quickly through his congressional tenure because he didn't do a whole lot. <laughs> and he but said not the same so. Thing. Right. That's what He's, I love. He at least what he was doing, it was not stuff that he was like big about putting his name on. It seemed like he was definitely the guy who kind of greased the skids behind the scene, you know, took people out to lunch and said, hey, how can we get your vote on this bill? He was an effective committee chairman or subcommittee chairman, um, but never actually authored a major piece of legislation in his entire congressional career. But you, he does keep getting promoted, which is a sign that he is rubbing people the right way and people feel like he's effective at what he does even if he's not jumping up and down and saying look at me jerry does good yeah ford referred to himself hmm. in congress as a negotiator and a reconciler the man was friends per his own account granted with both richard nixon and john f kennedy if you can hang out with both of those guys then you're either bland as cottage cheese or extremely affable. Well, that was and, also an error. That's a nickname that he had. Uh, people, oh yeah, critics called him an affable dunce. But yes. it, but it was also well before we get into the era of the political. Your political opponents are enemies to be continuously defiled and ripped apart again that's yeah we new, had the coming friendship of the huac hearings in the mccarthy era uh, well but, but i mean but nixon come on you're hanging out with nixon it's not like hanging out with ted cruz but still <laughs> it's close well, it's not close. far off i was gonna yeah. say it's close i mean but, you know, notably I, he was not friends with uh johnson however Oh God, no! Was Johnson anybody friends? Did Johnson ever have a single friend Johnson in his life? The dogs. The dogs. Friend, <laughs> friend might be a strong word. Right. I, I do love this. Johnson had people who, you know, their peckers were in his pocket, as he would put it, <laughs> and those who weren't. That's how I, Johnson operated. Yeah, I do love this anecdote here mm -hmm. uh, because through Johnson, Ford is the origin of the phrase "you can't walk, walk and chew and gum, gum. At, at the same time," because Johnson said he was so dumb he can't fart and chew gum but the press couldn't publish that. Yes. He also <laughs> asked a number of times if Ford had gotten his head hit too many times playing football for Michigan. Mm-hmm. That, that was very Which is almost certainly accurate. He, he almost certainly did. did. 
but he was celebrating him. Well, I, I let me let me delicately ask: Was he dumb? He was midwestern. Right. I don't think he was dumb. I mean, clearly, Take that, like the Midwest. <laughs> he's not dumb. He's just really friendly and nice. I don't think he was overstated about his intelligence. I don't think he walked into a room and told people what they should think and why they should think it. And so I think that his, I don't think that he was like, I don't like, if you're going to say who are like the most intelligent, I, I don't think he was as intelligent as the two people who preceded him, Nixon or Johnson, who were crazy, crazy smart. Um, in and crazy, crazy evil, great, crazy, crazy, at least like evil to you know, megalomaniacal somewhere on that spectrum, wherever you draw that line. Um, but I also don't, I don't think he was dumb. I think he had reasonably good political instincts school. and I think he understood policy. Um, but he also wasn't somebody who commanded a room by their presence or, you know, through their eloquence, um, you know, was going to rise a, a crowd to, and I just, I, I don't think he ever thought of himself as like, like that. He, he didn't think of himself as a Kennedy in terms of being a, a, you know, mastermind of eloquence and, and grace. I don't think he ever thought of himself as a Johnson as, as being, you know, smarter than everyone and more dominant than everyone in the room. Um, I don't think he ever thought of himself as a Nixon of somebody who was going to, you know, manipulate all the levers of power in every way he could. Um, you know, I just think that he was very understated in terms of how he saw his role. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of unique how, you know, what, what he just kind of falls into the presidency. <laughs> Well, um, I, would, I think the word I would use to describe him, and maybe the reason he came off as dumb in an atmosphere like Washington, was that he was guileless. I mean, for God's sakes, he went to he went to John Mitchell in 1972 and asked, "Did the president know about the Watergate break-in?" Mitchell told him no, and Ford believed him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, I probably think... like a gentleman's agreement. We're all gentlemen here. We we wouldn't lie about such. Yeah, the president would never lie. Uh, the, the Midwesterners don't do gentlemen's agreements. We just say, "Aw shucks, Mister." No, we I, just. I don't. Oh, I don't okay. know about that. Uh, I don't know about that alibi you're talking to us there. We, we just agree not to talk about it. That's true. I, I do it's think just that like a passive-aggressive thing. Ford could be naive. I think if, if yes, there was going to be yes. a, a critique about his character is that that he could be naive about things. And, and that that was, I think, one of those things is that he couldn't see the the evil of the Nixon administration until it was literally staring him in the face. Um, Which is true of a lot of Republicans. And, 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 and even that, I think that he, he largely, because I think what he saw what Nixon did as being wrong, you know, but I also think that he then saw once Nixon was gone, as that's like, okay, well, that's gone. I don't need to worry about that anymore. Uh, okay, because, of okay. course, he keeps most of Nixon's people in office. So, so when he is asked to replace Agnew, is there, is it being done kind of with some knowledge that you may very, like, Get ready, because it's coming. You're getting the gig. You're getting the presidency. So he finds out, I believe, when they're preparing the vice presidential home for him and Betty to move into. Mm -hmm. And he essentially says to Betty, I don't think we're ever going to see the inside of the vice president's house. 
right? Wow. Because he's alerted that there is a tape that will be released on Monday. And I think this was like Saturday. And so just so you know. Well, the Saturday Night Massacre comes the week after Agnew resigns. When does Ford, I'm trying to remember when Ford takes the office or gets gets approved of it. So he's told on August 1st that a tape will come out and there will either be. No, 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 no. Okay. No, 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 no. This is, you're, you're talking about when he's already vice president. I'm talking about before he becomes vice president. Agnew resigns, then comes the Saturday Night Massacre. And somewhere after that, he becomes vice president. October 10th, 1973. So, so somewhere in there, there must be some knowledge. Uh, again, that's where I'm kind of going. He's taking the vice presidency, but he knows. I mean, he, he kind of knows he's not. He's going to end up being president. No, I'm not sure. I don't think I it's. Don't... Yeah, I don't think it's yeah. him. I don't think so. It's congress. So Nixon consults with congressional leaders about who should be the replacement, and they essentially say it's Ford or or no one. And I don't know that there was that, like, there had been reporting, right, in the Washington Post and some other news outlets about the Watergate break-in, and then there had been some follow-up about, like, well, there's starting to be some implication that there might be maybe higher-level people in the administration who may have been connected to this, Um, but it really, it had kind of been in the national consciousness, and then it had kind of faded out, I think, and then there was kind of this, this lull, and the Saturday Night Massacre was kind of like, oh my gosh, wait what this is actually you know because they the investigation had started to really actually dig up some stuff but i i think that until that had happened there wasn't a lot of knowledge about it um you know outside of those people who were involved in the administration and there had been the hearings there had i was going to say there was the butterfield admission that there was a tape system that was the first real crack I would say, James, you're probably right in that there were plenty of other distractions at the time concerning, as we were talking about inflation, the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera, that could have knocked Watergate off of a few front pages. Right. So I, do, I guess I don't know like how, you know, I, I obviously at some point the Nixon resignation was being envisaged before it happened. But I don't think it seemed like at least how I'm kind of recollecting the timeline and I may be wrong. Um, that that really happened in a pretty short span of time where all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, this is really bad. Nixon's got to go. Um, and that while there had been kind of a slow burn that led up to that point, um, the idea that Nixon himself would be, would have to take the fall for this. I don't think that that had really seeped down into the congressional level yet. Well, let me, let me ask you this, because I realized the presidency was short, but how distinguished was Gerald Ford's vice presidency? How I mean, distinguished I mean, can a vice presidency possibly right. be? <laughs> Especially when I, I mean he was he was there for just a few months. I think that he managed to avoid getting implicated in like bribery scandals, so that was a plus That's for good. his predecessor. I, I assume um, he avoided drink. He and Betty avoided drinking with Dick while the while the, the everything started to crumble. That's probably good. That would have been a tense party, I imagine. <laughs> drinking with a cantankerous Quaker and an alcoholic and Gerald Ford. <laughs> He's I'm, probably talking about Michigan football. Yeah. Come on. I, I'm assuming Pat I'm assuming Pat was preparing 
snacks in the next room and wasn't invited. <laughs> or she was drinking herself in her room. <laughs> and, and, and meanwhile, Watergate gets closer and closer and closer to Nixon. And then, Chelsea, you were talking about at what point do they does he really start to realize I really it's it's time to we I'm going to get yeah so what Chelsea was alluding to on Thursday August 1st 1974 Chief of Staff Alexander Haig contacted Ford to tell him to prepare for the presidency you're going to be in charge Greg. so that's an interesting phone call um if I can throw in yet another that's anecdote. either a phone call that you've been waiting your whole life to receive or it's a phone call you never ever want to receive if and someone calls me tonight and called. says prepare for the presidency, I am going straight to Canada as fast as I can. He <laughs> thought he was going to get the call saying that the Republicans had finally won a majority in the House and he was going to be Speaker. There is the call that never came. There is the Taft ambition that actually got diverted into the presidency. But uh, a, a stupid Newsweek correspondent for Stupid Newsweek said he'd been the story that he could not print until after Gerald Ford had shuffled off this mortal coil was that in April 1974, Ford was complaining about how Nixon's most vehement defenders were criticizing him, kicking, you know, kicking poor Gerald Ford when he was down for not being enough of a tack dog in April of 1974. And Jerry was like, why are they doing that? I'm a nice guy. Pardon the bad Gerald Ford imitation. A very bad one, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'll... <laughs> That's the expert, y'all. <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you for changing the casting at the last second. There you go. The reporter said, the reporter said maybe they they know that Nixon is doomed and they're taking it out on you. And he said, yeah, probably. But then Ford said, no, you cannot let it out. Let it get out that I just said that. This guy does really sound like a bumbling sitcom character. <laughs> I love Gerald Ford. He's like, oh, yeah, he's going to leave. Don't print that. He, he's an 80s sitcom dad uh, yeah, he is yeah. like all of the midwestern like fuzzies that i just love right like he's too nice he like speaks before he thinks sometimes like he's actually very yeah. intelligent but is also like yeah i'll go milk your cow and he like, just wants to sit and watch the game just, just yeah. wants to watch michigan football <laughs> okay so Ford gets in, and within weeks, he does the he does the thing that are, are certainly becomes the signature of his presidency: the pardon. Yeah. September 9th, nineteen seventy four. I thought birthday. I really thought you were going to say like he fell into a table full of like champagne flutes or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's the move that we remember him for. So I think that we are on pretty firm ground to know that there was no kind of corrupt bargain, corrupt bargain. that yeah. that Nixon did not, you know, basically resign because Ford had promised that he was going to pardon him. I, I, I guess I trust Ford's character sketch enough to say that he wouldn't have done that. Um, yeah, I'll actually throw in. I've been sitting on this fact this whole time. It is the one thing that Gerald Ford and I have in common. Uh, we are both Eagle Scouts. And I think he genuinely lived those values in a way that I'm not trying to claim that I do. But I think he was our first Eagle Scout president. Tommy, and maybe only. he could be our second. I believe he's our only, yeah. 
yeah. until I get elected. But people are going to have to get cool about some stuff real fast. Uh, he also <laughs> had the Eagle Scouts participate in his funeral ceremony. Uh, I think I saw that as well. So yeah. in other words, the so part- He literally was a Boy Scout. Literally. Yeah, he literally no, thought the pardon- he, he, he needed the pardon because, as he said, uh, we needed he needed to end this long national nightmare and the and i remember i was a kid at the time and i think there was while there was also anger i remember the counter argument which was this was so traumatic that patrick it would rip never, the country it apart never happen again there you go yep or it will but so I, I guess there's, there's a few ways to analyze it one is i think ultimately the pardon did kind of doom his further political career i think that he would have had a better chance in 76 if he hadn't done it done that I think on the other hand i could see from a purely self-interested analysis saying i'm never going to make any headway as president if a nixon investigation and trial is constantly blowing up the headlines if i'm ever going to distinguish myself in this role at all we've got to move up beyond this and and i think you know Ford might have calculated that it was good for him, but I, I do think that ultimately he believed it was in the best interest of the country to, to move beyond this. Um, whether it was, I think, is a totally open question, and I, I'm certainly, I think you have to kind of make your own decision on that. Certainly, that's what I've encouraged my students to do over the years, as we've been essaying <laughs> on that I'm topic. pro heads on spikes, so yeah. I, I think well, one it was of, a one bad of the, move. Well, one of the things that does happen is a series of electoral presidential reforms that Congress passes. Now, I don't remember whether that was done with the new Congress, which happened because the Republicans got, I would argue, appropriately savaged in the 74 midterms, or whether that was something Ford had sort of generated and realized he needed to do. He certainly signed everything into law. So did he have anything to do with any of those laws? You know, I think that he, again, in a kind of a, a very Fordian way that he was not necessarily out in front on this issue, but that I think he was also recognized that he had to get behind it and, and sign it. And even if they may have restricted his power, that it was important for, you know, for the American public to have any faith in the presidential, you know, system uh, that, you know, there had to be more accountability, there had to be more openness um and, and there had to be some more congressional oversight so so was that kind of his goal was to just try to restore some sense of normalcy and respect to the presidency i think yes i think again if you're if you're going to look at it from a self-interested standpoint if he hadn't have succeeded in that he wouldn't have succeeded in anything right if, if he had come and everyone and he had been everyone was like this guy's nixon stooge he wouldn't have gotten anything done he would have been completely unpopular from the start um, and he would have never been able to distinguish himself. I think he saw it as essential, both for the country, but also for himself, to try to restore the dignity of the presidency. Um, and I think that, while I don't think he really succeeded in the, in, in the complete way that he would have liked to, he was uniquely well-suited to do it compared to any other politician in America at the time. Um, that there really wasn't anyone else who could have done that, especially with the presidency staying in the same party, right? Like maybe you could say, okay, if it switched parties, then we could get onto a clean start. But if, you know, you're going to have somebody within the same party of the guy who just got kicked out for mm -hmm. all the horribles, 
um, to say, I'm going to totally turn over a new leaf here, um, then this is really the guy to do that. I think that that's um, you know, like as I'm kind of watching some of the turmoil that's going on in Britain as they kind of just cycle through conservative PMs because no one can, you know. Let me check to see if there's a new one. Right. Screw themselves over. And, you know, within a few weeks um, that you, that it, it's hard when you take over kind of for a tainted brand to be able to restore that to, um, you know, a, a place where the public is going to hold that in esteem. And again, I'm not sure that Nixon or excuse me, that Ford succeeded all the way, because I think that Americans trust in government has never never recovered really from from watergate in vietnam um but that he was the only one who could have done as good a job as he did well i mean and, and boy he had a, maybe I mean, bob dole also is the only other person that, did he have that prestige at, i don't know if he had that prestige at that moment in time yeah later For so interesting to me that the what if right like what if things had gone differently and counterfactuals yes and and that's one of the things that i the pardon is one of historians of the 20th century it's one of their favorite counterfactuals right because we truly will never know how that would have turned out but we delight in talking about it behind closed doors or after we've had a couple beers because like i have said on the show many times we don't entertain counterfactuals uh, but we do. Well, it's and like I think one of the things story and get-togethers are lit. So a lot of times when we talk about counterfactuals, it's like, well, what if this guy had won the election? And it's like, well, okay, but then you would have had to change millions of people's votes. Like, how would that have <laughs> even occurred? But with the pardon, it was literally Ford was like, I will do this or I will not do this. It was all in his control. And so we're literally just talking about one person's mind flipping and then that unlocking a whole kind of new story arc and, and what would have that have looked like? Also. Like we talked, we talked about what a klutz he was and the times he sort of fell. And I mean, there's so many sort of the missteps. I mean, where do you, do you want to go with the constant attempts by ex Mansonites to assassinate him? Do we want to talk about the swine flu, which we did in our pandemic episode part two, oh, or do we want to talk about whip inflation now? I used right. to own I say or when you can say, and <laughs> saying, can I throw in one body blow he dealt to the body to the body politic was he gave donald rumsfeld and dick cheney their starts yep. in an executive branch yes after oh god then he must be burned in effigy after what after everything they did in chile with allende yeah yes yeah. we are forever sorry i'm very sorry mm -hmm. i will apologize for all of michigan for that thank you yeah I mean, he, also, uh, he also gave uh H.W. Bush quite a leg up, uh, making him the CIA, CIA director. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. And what was the price of making uh, the confirmation of George W. Bush as CIA director? He had to dump Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president. Oh. oh. I thought Rockefeller of? had said that he just wasn't, he's like, no, thank you. That was, oh, the, was, that was the a story that Ford said, apparently in the memoir that I just read by the stupid Newsweek correspondent for Stupid <laughs> Newsweek, Ford was haunted by his betrayal of Rockefeller for the rest of his life. Oh, 
yeah, he's kind definitely of Midwestern. Reliving mm. all of his guilt. Yeah, he's definitely from the Midwest. And that, I, you know, I think with the economic stuff, what's interesting is that Ford is actually, a, he had a, his BA was in economics at it Michigan. Was. Um, at Michigan. But um, again, I, I think your critique, or our critique of Ford as being naive uh, applies to his economic policy as well. Like yeah. whip inflation now, hey, everybody just don't accept higher wages and don't accept higher prices and that'll get rid of inflation. And don't that forget to work. sign this form and just, send it into your national government using the postal service. Yeah, <laughs> you can't just imagine that inflation doesn't exist. Um, it, it just doesn't work like that. It, it's that's not that's not a real strategy. That's magic thinking. And and so I think if, if you're going to really critique him from a policy standpoint, that's I, I think where he falls short. Mr. Ford, Betty, we're almost ready for auditions. Sounds good, Cal. Oh, Jerry, I still think choosing a mascot for the Whip Inflation Now campaign is a silly idea. Oh, come on, Bets. People love mascots. They raise awareness. Look how Smokey the Bear stopped forest fires. You don't need more awareness of when. The buttons, the slogans, the National Committee on Inflation. They won't work. But bets, trying to revive the economy through symbolism and public relations has been the Republican tradition since over. <laughs> My point exactly. And why is Calvin involved? I'll admit he's made a few blunders. Blunders? He tried to stop our wedding. But he's still a friend. You know, I'm loyal to a fault. <laughs> loyal to an idiot is more like it. Oh, cheer up, Gloomy Gus. Calvin worked with the Leo Burnett ad agency, the people who created the Jolly Green Giants. Yeah, this will be a whole, whole, whole lot of fun. Our first potential mascot is designed to capitalize on America's love of animated dogs. Here's Whippy the Whippet. Oh, I'm gonna outrun the pace of inflation. <laughs> Screw this pooch. All right. Uh, talking automobile cartoons are also in vogue. Please welcome Gas Guzzler Gertie. I hate it when people drive me faster than 55 miles per hour. It leads to inflation and not the kind in my tires. I junk this one. Okay, uh, we have some non-anthropomorphized options like this homage to Fonzie from the Happy Days show. Cool Whip. Hey, oh, hey, Cool Whip says stagflation has got to go. Hey. Thumbs down. Well then, in keeping with people's more liberated views of sexuality, we present Donna the Dominatrix. Have you been a naughty consumer? Hmm? Do you need some discipline so you'll save more money? On your knees, worm. Whatever now. the safe word is, I'm yelling it. Thought she was kind of fun. That's it. No more cocktail parties with Kissinger. Moving on. You know how kids go crazy for that rock and roll music. Here's Devo, a band from Akron, Ohio. 
Crack that whip! Whip inflation now! Are we not done? Indeed we almost are, Betty. I have a last name, you know. All right, Miss Bloomer. We're also considering a celebrity spokesperson. Please welcome Chef Julia Child. is like winning meringue. You cannot be risk adverse. That was terrible. Mm-hmm. Better than the rest. It's an honor to meet you, Ms. Child. Would you like a tour of the White House kitchen? Only of all traces of Henry and Nesbitt have emerged. <laughs> oh, yes. Jackie Kennedy ordered an exorcism. Calvin, be a dear and show Ms. Child around. If she's willing to whip up a dessert, she can make you a nice gooseberry fool. All right, Mrs. Ford. You were right, Betty. This whole win campaign is stupid. But I inherited a lousy economy from Dick and it keeps getting worse. What should I do? Well, you could be honest with the American people and tell them there's not much a president can do about inflation. But bets. I need to keep trying to solve America's myriad problems. It's the least I owe the voters. What voters, Jerry? No one elected you. Love you too, Bets. <laughs> Pour me another glass. You know, I think kudos for his, like I said, his advocacy for women's rights. Um, you know, I think to some extent from stepping back from some of like the really destructive things that Nixon had done um, policy wise to, you know, disenfranchise um, black Americans and other minorities. Um, well, so one of the, it, you know, what, one of the other, one of the other moments and I was just kind of wandering through and this popped up was Ford to New York drop drop dead. dead. Yes. That's one of my absolute favorite things ever. Why is that, Joseph? The reality is, though, like, Ford is a fiscal conservative, right? He's not the one who's saying, let's, you know, redo the Great Society. That was not his approach at all. And so I think when he saw municipalities running into financial struggles, as New York City was at this point in time, he was of the approach that the federal government is really not the tool to to help with this issue, that, you know, the the city's got to help itself. I guess I want to talk more about some of the, um, you know, kind of the continuation of detente that happens throughout the Ford administration. Uh, And and this is kind of the the high point for relations between the Soviet Union and the United States is in the Ford administration. Um, In the Carter administration. Right. There, well, there's not the immediate decline in relations, but there is af- after 1979 when the Soviets invade Afghanistan. Um, that's kind of starts things on a downhill slope. But um, you get yeah, a Stinky Watch under Ford, um, which becomes right, Human so, Rights Watch. Yep. The, the Human Rights uh, Accords. I think this is also when they do the apollo soyuz um that sounds right like, yeah oh they, they do have yeah there's the space station skylab too yeah in that era um but but this is like when the you know the the soviets and the americans had like their mm. two spaceships like linked up 
But even Skylab, remember one of the solar panels didn't come out and they had to put the umbrella out of it, outside of the craft so it wouldn't fry everybody on the inside? Which was more NASA than Ford, but, you know. <laughs> well, one of the things we talked about in, about in the Nixon episode was how he sort of killed the 60s. But if you stop, maybe maybe one of the ways to look at the Ford presidency, because I think a lot of, I mean, we, we, we talk about malaise and we will talk about it when we get into Carter, but man, I think you can make a pretty good case that the malaise, economic, cultural, social, really started to settle in with Ford and Nixon and Ford. And it could be sort of, this is the... Uh, the hangover from Watergate and all of the upheavals of the 60s. And like you said, who could, was there anybody that could have negotiated that? I mean, no, because one, I don't necessarily know that. No, I mean, functionally, no. No one could have like taken office in 1974 and said, all right, let me make, you know, wave my magic wand and you're going to forget Watergate and the Vietnam War ever happened. And oh, by the way, now inflation's gone too and everybody has a job. Let's go. Um, that I don't think that was realistic. Um, you know, I think, again, I think with the, with Watergate, you know, you can, you can say, you can make an argument, I think, credibly that the pardon was the best choice. I think you can make an argument credibly that if we really wanted to have accountability, we should have put Nixon and everyone who helped him on trial and said, hey, this is what happens to people who break the law, whether you're the president or not. And maybe that would have been more successful at restoring trust in government. But I don't I don't know. I think you could make a valid argument for both sides. I think Vietnam, I think that that, that just leaving was the best choice. Like, I, I certainly don't think that there was any appetite in 75 for let's go save South Vietnam. I know that there were some people in in high levels of government in the military who wanted to do that, but publicly, no. So if you wanted to make a clean break for Vietnam, then just getting out was the best choice. And I think a lesson that that Biden learned 40 years later. Okay, so where do we want to go? Manson assassinations? Well, I'm Uh, curious, did his uh, ability as a football player help him with his agility to dodge those bullets by uh, Manson's uh, girls? And the other one? Sarah Jane Moore. Sarah Jane Moore, the companion. I mean, luckily he doesn't need to dodge really, right? Like one of them uh, gets kind of pushed out of the way and the other one also gets tackled. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably the most athletically gifted president in history is the one who's remembered for falling down a staircase. Yes. Squeaky tried to plug him in Sacramento, but she did not load the gun correctly. That's what you know. That's what she gets for not going out on chart one of Charlie's errands. <laughs> and that was and in San Francisco, Sarah Jane Moore fires a live round at him. Now, squeaky, but it goes we know like about six feet above him. Mm-hmm. So she didn't know how to aim a gun. Yes. By the way, they but she both- was busy on the clearly. She should have gone to pre-flight school that Gerald Ford taught back in the nineteen forties. <laughs> See, this is why they should vet FBI where he was the athletic better. officer. I do want to mention both those ladies are alive and free right now. They are both out of jail. So everyone, just like keep walk to your car in pairs. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> yep.
this woman says she works for your family, Miss Hurst. Family? What family? The only real family I've ever had was the Symbionese Liberation Army, but they've all either been murdered or turned into traitors by pigs like you. Yeah, it's a living. I'll leave you two ladies alone. Hi, Patty. My name is Sarah Jane Moore. And my name is Tanya. I have rejected the name given to me by the fascist insects whom I once called mother and father. Oh, terribly sorry. Hi, Tanya. Here, I brought you a gun. A, a gun? How did you sneak this thing past the guards? Oh, I just said I'm a Hearst employee, and they waved me through without even looking in my purse. Hope it doesn't smell too much like breath mints and hand lotion. Well, what am I supposed to do with this? You're supposed to shoot it, silly. Funny, it sure looked like you knew how to handle a gun in that bank robbery video. But if you're out of practice, I could lay down some cover fire while you bust out of this joint. This is a ruse. My capitalist slime parents think it'll be easier to prove I was brainwashed if I try to escape from prison. Well, you tell those parasites that I'd rather die in a hunger strike, get sent to the gas chamber, or even marry my ex-fiance, Stephen Weed, before I accept any help from them. I'd be happy to deliver the message, Tanya, but um, Mr. and Mrs. Hurst said they'd have me arrested if I ever set foot on their property again. Let me guess. My alcoholic reactionary mother thinks you've been pilfering the Waterford crystal. Now, Tanya, why do you assume I was a housekeeper? Because, and I say this in a spirit of sisterhood with oppressed women everywhere, you're kind of a frump. My, 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 don't we have archaic ideas? I'll have you know I am an accountant. I worked for the food pantry your parents created in response for the SLA's ransom demands. <laughs> that must have been a riot. Two, actually. We shut down so there wouldn't be a third, but I only got involved so I could help you, Tanya. That's why I went to your home in Hillsborough, so I could offer my services as a go-between. What a lovely house. I'd wish I'd gotten a grand tour before the FBI removed me from the premises. So you're just a weirdo. Ah, is that any way to talk to a fellow freedom fighter? I'm a radical, just like you. Down with oppression, up with people. Hmm. A radical in support hose and sensible shoes. Great. So who have you read for your political education? Marx? Bakunin? Chomsky? I watched Maud. Uh, I'm a working mother of five, Tanya. We all don't have the luxury of being kidnapped by a band of left-wing terrorists. Mm. Look, Sarah... You seem like a nice lady, but I really don't think I should ally myself with a publicity seeker. Of all the nerve. Publicity seeker? What exactly were you trying to achieve with all those cassette tapes you were sent to the radio stations? You were all over the news. Wow. Jealous much? Sarah, you don't care about equality. You just want your picture in the papers. Posers like you are destroying the American left. Just like that squeaky from twit who tried to shoot Gerald Ford in Sacramento. Up all the nerve, comparing me to that awful Manson girl. Listen, if I wanted to kill the president, he'd be dead. Oh, really? But 
Here, here's your gun, prove it. You know what? I just might assassinate the president. Hey, you already have three names. You're a natural. Maybe I will. And once I do kill Gerald Ford, I'll go down in history as a hero in the struggle for liberation. <laughs> yeah, just like Leon Scholos and Giuseppe Zangara and all those other losers deluded enough to think random acts of political violence like assassinating school officials and robbing banks and shooting up parking lots will lead to anything but a bunch of dead activists and greater government repression. Wow, we're... We're more, maybe we're more alike than I thought, Sarah. Now, was that so hard to admit? Painfully. Hey, turnkey, my visitor is ready to go. You bet I am. So nice to finally meet you, Tanya. Thanks for the lovely chat. Ta-ta! You too. It's been very revealing. I hope you don't think you're going to frisk me. That makes two of us. Expecting any more visitors, Miss Hurst? Please, call me Patty. Hey guys, it's Tommy Spears, the DB comedy member who sometimes breaks the fourth wall and rarely does the reading. We've had a lot of fun this episode laughing about Gerald Ford. I mean, who wouldn't, right? He, he falls over and he almost gets shot, but then he lives. The only bad thing that came out of it was Chevy Chase's career, and that nightmare is almost over. But there's a story about the second California assassination attempt that doesn't get told a lot, and I want to tell it. It's not a fun story. See, Ford was almost shot in early September of 75 in Sacramento, and then three weeks later he was almost shot again in San Francisco outside the St. Francis Hotel. Incidentally, the St. Francis is also where the crime that ended Fatty Arbuckle's career maybe happened in 1921. So the would-be assassins were Lynette Squeaky Fromm and Sarah Jane Moore. Both women are now out of jail and still alive. But you know who's not? The man who saved Gerald Ford's life. See, that day in San Francisco, Moore fired on the president from 40 feet with a revolver she'd just bought that morning. And she came pretty damn close to hitting him. Not like Lincoln close, but still. She went to fire again, but she was standing near a man who was about to become a hero, Oliver Sipple. Sipple saw her raising the gun again and dove on her just as she pulled the trigger, and because of Sipple, Ford survived. The Secret Service grabbed Moore and took her away. They praised Oliver Sipple's actions, but when he talked to the press, he didn't want his name or location in the papers. Here's why. Oliver Sipple had served as a private first class in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. In December of 1968, he suffered shrapnel wounds and had to be hospitalized until early 1970. He was in and out of VA hospitals for the rest of his life. Sipple also happened to be gay. When he saved Ford's life, he was living with a merchant marine in the Mission District. He was friends with Harvey Milk, he had worked in gay bars, marched in pride parades. He didn't want his name in the paper, and he didn't want them to print that he was gay, because neither his mother nor his employer knew. And in 1975, they could have him fired pretty easily for that. But Harvey Milk, yeah, that Harvey Milk, didn't look at this as a privacy issue. He viewed it as a chance to dispel rumors about gay men. And he allegedly told a friend, quote, 
it's too good an opportunity for once we can show that gays do heroic things, not just all that caca about molesting children and hanging out in bathrooms. Reverend Ray Brochiers, leader of the Lavender Panthers, agreed with him. They both left answering machine messages for Herb Kahn, a gossip columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and just like that, Sippel was outed. It's uncool to out somebody against their will. Consent is everything. And outing anyone to further your own political agenda doesn't really make you a civil rights hero, Harvey. I guess that's why they left this bit out of the Sean Penn movie. But I digress. I often do. Sipple's mother refused to speak to him. His father told his brother to forget about Oliver. Ford sent a note. And as far as I know, those gay stereotypes continued. Harvey... Sipple sued the Chronicle and seven other newspapers nationally for $15 million for invasion of privacy. It went on for nine years, but in 1984, a California State Court of Appeals decided that since he had become news, that he was a public figure and his whole life could be reported on. And all for saving a president's life. And not like a Trump, I mean one of the good ones. Sipple's mother died, and his father didn't let him go to the funeral. So he drank, gained weight, got fitted with a pacemaker, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. His friend said that he would get drunk and talk about regretting grabbing that gun because it had ruined his life. On Groundhog's Day, 1989, Sipple was found dead at the age of 47 in his apartment next to a bottle of Jack Daniels. The TV was still on. He had been dead for around 10 days. He was alone. After Sipple's death, Ford sent another letter to his friends, which started, Mrs. Ford and I express our deepest sympathy in this time of sorrow involving your friend's passing. In 2001, Ford said that he hadn't treated Sipple any differently because he was gay. He said he thought the letter was enough, and I quote, I don't know where anyone got the crazy idea I was prejudiced and wanted to exclude gays. Well, I have a hunch, Jerry. Look, America has never been very good to people who are different. We treat them like garbage, to be honest. It's too late to change what happened to Oliver Sipple, but we can still change. What are we going to do the next time this happens and we don't like the hero? What happens if the president's life gets saved by a pansexual polyamorist, or a socialist, or an addict? What if they're black, or undocumented, or trans? What if they're too mentally ill to hold down a job? What if they have a record? What happens if they look or talk or act different? I believe this country's at its best when it lives up to its philosophy and at its worst when it lives up to its history. So let's live up to our philosophy. Because I don't want to live in a country that would throw someone away for who he loves. So Private First Class Oliver Sipple, we salute you. And I'm so very, very sorry. Okay, so where do we want to go? Manson assassinations, when, uh, oh, the, 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 the Vietnam withdrawal, that was, that was a, tr that was not. I mean, good. actually where I want to go, I want to go to Ford being an outspoken supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment 
and Good. Betty, right? And Betty being a very outspoken supporter of uh, Roe v. Wade, even though Ford said that he could have done without it. And then later in his life was like, no, actually I'm pro-choice. <laughs> in kind of... I, I don't know, maybe you guys talked about this in the Nixon episode that the only Nixon could go to China, right? Only somebody who had the credentials as being such a hard on communism, anti-communist, cold warrior could then say, okay, well, let's make peace with the communist Chinese and, and open that door. Mm -hmm. I think Ford's, the fact that he was so above reproach as just kind of a himself living culturally conservative values within his own life, I guess, other than marrying a divorcee but again like no allegation of substance abuse no allegation that i know of, of extramarital activity um that then that gave him the ability to be an advocate you know kind of on the margins but i think perhaps the most notable republican president after 1950 an advocate of kind of social and liberal you know socially liberal cultural reform um that a, a Democrat could never have been as successful as because they would have been seen as, oh, well, this guy's culturally liberal to begin with, you know, because Ford kind of lived a conservative lifestyle, then being, you know, able to say, well, like, okay, well, my wife is okay with this, or I'm a big supporter of women's rights in the workplace. Uh, he was able to kind of speak with more, basic, basically he had more wiggle room, you know, well, from the crowd. Well, he had well, more well, heft behind him. Mm -hmm. But you also had, you know, we, we should think about positives, the bicentennial, which was a huge deal as a kid. I, you know, those of you who were kids in that era, speak up. <laughs> oh. uh, okay. Um, I was not, but I have, uh, this is sort of the opposite, or maybe sort of what we're talking about with people getting burned on America. My dad and three friends left to Alaska for four months because they were tired of people talking about America that much in the summer of 76. <laughs> four months, canoes. You well, guys, my, there must have been Alaska a lot of red, white, in America? Stuff. How did that help? No people around. Yeah. Ah, you went to the part of Alaska where nobody yeah. lives. But luckily for they him. Canoed, they canoed away from the coast of Alaska. <laughs> luckily for him, Ford also pardoned the draft dodgers. Yes. That's true. This was 77. That was, he was out of the, but yeah. He was only open to the idea of pardoning the draft dodgers. It was <laughs> Carter who did it. Carter did it on oh, day one. But Ford started Ford. the process, but there was a process. It, it wasn't was, just a was blanket. A Everyone's pardoned. Yes, it was a conditional pardon yes. for certain people, not, not all of the draft dodgers. Yeah. And you had to do two years right. of public service. Right. And then we get, so there's an election in 76 and boy, we'll get to Jimmy Carter in that election, but that was a close election. In spite of all of that, he damn near pulled it out. Can you, can, let, can, we, can you talk about it? He I mean, gone through a very bruising primary season because Reagan was running against him. That was a contested convention. Yeah, That was like the political junkies wet dream because it was actually did not know who was going to be nominated going into the convention. So how did Nick, how did Ford pull it off? I mean, I think, you know, it, it's, it's hard to unseat and, you know, someone who's an incumbent. And I also think that 
you know, you you had it, the, the fact that he had been competitive at all showed that he had, you know, kind of again restored the brand a little bit, and so they they decided to to go with him. I don't think I don't I think if Reagan had won in, in 76, he would have lost um, for sure. Um, My understanding was Reagan, even while he was governor, was considered a political joke. Although, as I recall, the 76, see, we talk about Obama in 2004 in the, in the Democratic Convention. As I recall, Reagan in 76 had or had one of those speeches that kind of set himself up for what he did in 80. Ford, you know, did done a lot of good. Um, I think also that this was, uh, he, he again kind of lucks out with uh, the economy a little bit in terms of the economy had recovered. Again, we talked about it was the 73, 75 recession. So by 76, we're in recovery. Um, so the economy looks like it's, it's headed on the way back a little bit. Um, we had a big party in the summer that helped. Yep. And, uh, and, and I think Carter, was was not totally successful at convincing the whole electorate that he was going to be effective. I think even from the start, um, there were were doubts on people who might have been willing to vote for a, a Democrat who said, okay, but but this one really, I mean, one, this guy's from the South, that's kind of weird. Um, two, this guy's just kind of weird. Um, and so I think that, um, well, you'd, you'd think that 76 would be a really good year for Democrats, and in general, it was, although they don't quite win the same level of congressional majorities that they had in 74, um, that Ford had done enough and, and Carter had done, you know, not quite enough that it ended up being a, a fairly close election. I think if, if, they, if the Democrats had had a, a Joe Kennedy in their pocket in 76, right, they would have, they would have won pretty soundly, but they didn't have any of those. Um, and all those had been had been assassinated at that point. So Ford lived a fairly long life post presidency. Well, over thirty I, years. Yeah, and, and he I, he certainly wasn't really looked upon as sort of a sage of the Republican Party, in part because of what the Republican Party becomes once he leaves. Um, and then you have the Betty, and then you have the Betty Ford clinic. So arguably, she certainly you could say she may have had the bigger post presidential influence. What Gerald did though was he established the post presidency as a business opportunity. Oh, do tell. He gave a lot of speeches. He kind of invented the honorarium before there was no there was no presidential pension before Truman. The no presidential penury before the presidential pension before the penury of Harry Truman. The alliteration drops there. <laughs> so, a uh, president made his money Grant style by writing his memoirs. Gerald R. Ford, he gave speeches, he served on a lot of corporate boards. His oh. best friend was Sanford Weil from or Sandy, as he called him, from was Sandy from American Express or from Citibank or City. whatever. City. City, okay. Yep. So he also Gerald Ford also invested heavily in oil in the post presidency, and that's how his family has a lot of money still today. Yeah. He retired to the desert, played a lot of golf. Oh, that's yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, he did. 
And is there yeah, a they, Gerald Ford open somewhere? For some reason, that rings oh, a bell. Man, that would be awesome. I think oh, there it is. I mean, we also is. we almost had uh, Vice President Ford Part Two because Reagan mm. Reagan tried to get him to be Vice President. Yeah, um, but I love that Ford, and we'll get to this with when we talk about Reagan probably in more detail. But I love that Ford's like. Yeah, it'll be kind of like a co-presidency. Like I get to appoint some people to the Federal Reserve Bank, and you get to look good on camera. Which is why Reagan change? rejected that idea. <laughs> you know, I but I, I think that Ford ultimately has to be reasonably pleased with his legacy leaving office. You know, I think he, he would have, you know, preferred to have stayed on for another four years. But I think I think if he had, he would have had a less positive legacy than he does. Um, I think if he had stayed on for another four years, he would have ended up being tagged with a lot of kind of the height of malaise stuff that Carter gets tagged with, because most of that wasn't really under, you know, presidential control. Um, and instead, he can go out of office and say, okay, two and a half years, I inherited a country that political system was in free fall, and I exited with a political system that had been largely returned to normality. and and, and that is, again, I think his, his biggest contribution is just, you know, what people say, his, his fundamental decency as a person. Except that, oh. as we are now in this era of this horribly openly corrupt ex-president and what do we do about him and why are we so afraid to, to, to even indict him, much less prosecute him, you, I've seen a lot of pundits and writers go back and say that, that going back to the pardon decision and saying that helped set up Trump and where we're at now because that refusal to punish made it seem like when you're the president, you can get away with it. When you're the president, you can do anything. When you're the president, it's not illegal. And I, that's why I said I think you can make the argument that the you know that the pardon really was the original sin of the Ford presidency, and and I don't I don't know whether or not that was a good idea or not. I think you can make a strong argument that it, that it wasn't, and that we need to have accountability for those people. But I think you can also understand Ford's impulse at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the very least, I think that if Nixon's trial was still ongoing in '76, which I think it would have been that Ford would have had no chance to, to win re-election. And also, that's a really shitty bicentennial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. I mean, not, not if he gets convicted, it's oh. not. <laughs> well, and that's, that's the thing, right? It's so, it like, on the one hand, it's kind of like, oh, this is bad news. Look at how terrible of a president we had. On the other hand, perhaps it would have been, a, you know, reaffirmation of America's founding values of, you know, yeah, democracy rule of law and the, you know, equality of all citizens before it. And, you know, whether or not those were actually America's founding values, I think it'd be argued. But, um, you know, as as has been reinterpreted by by, you know, popular culture uh, as our founding values. And, you know, perhaps sending Nixon to prison would have been just, you know, a, in a way to say, no, we're this is this is what we're about. Gerald Ford, typical Midwestern dad, man. Yep. And that will bring us to the peanut farmer, arguably one of the toughest presidencies, but also potentially, arguably, the greatest ex-president ever. Mm -hmm. 
Does he have a Nobel Peace Prize like Jimmy Carter? And we'll continue this. We'll continue. Could change between now and then, but we'll be the first person we're talking about who's actually still alive. That is also true. But actually, listen to the podcast about themselves. And 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 on that note, as long as James doesn't jinx it, (laughs) Jimmy Carter next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network. And listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.